storytelling is learnable. You know, I mean, it's definitely an art. It's not a science, but you can learn it. So just like you wanted to learn how to play the guitar or the piano or learn to paint with pastels or something, that may not be your natural gift, but take a class, read a book, watch some videos, spend some time with somebody who does it. You can definitely learn these techniques. Paul, welcome back to the show. Honored to have you and be able to do a segment of shows with you so we can dive into this important topic of storytelling so we can all become more effective leaders. Thank you, Paul. Welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I'm just uh, starting to get the hang of this now. This is great. No, it's it's such an important thing. I I just, I know this personally, but I have personally not spent enough time on it. I know there's specific stories I have spent time on where if I'm speaking, you know, in front of a large group, that, you know, it's helped me tremendously. But So I know the value, but I've got to spend some time on it. So uh, for other contexts, other stories, and, and you've made a, a great list for us uh, to, just to break that down. So uh, it doesn't seem maybe as daunting for us to get started. Well, there's also a ton of storytelling techniques that I know you're an expert in that are, is going to help us in a big way. And let's dive in there today. And again, I want to encourage the listeners, go back and listen to the last couple of days. Paul has broken down the importance of storytelling to become an effective leader and even eight questions uh, that you should ask you know as you're thinking through the structure of your story uh, but let's dive in and what makes you know one a natural storyteller you know are there natural storytellers you know you know or maybe people say oh they're a natural salesman you know, or they're a whatever. Is that true? Or, you know, what do you think, Paul? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are, but I'm definitely not one of them, <laughs> and, <laughs> which is why I think I told you a couple of days ago, I, you know, I spent a long time trying to research and figure out how to do stories because they just didn't come naturally to me. But the good news is what I found out was that storytelling is learnable. You know, I mean, it's definitely an art. It's not a science, but you can learn it. So just like you know, if you wanted to learn how to play the guitar or the piano or learn to paint with pastels or something, that may not be your natural gift, but you know, take a class, read a book, watch some videos, spend some time with somebody who does it. You can definitely learn these techniques. That's helpful to know, right? I I can do it uh, and no doubt about it. We can all learn. Uh, And I think it, it's the time, right? We're going to have to spend the time to figure out you've walked us through these 10 different types of stories and eight questions to ask. Uh, And so maybe when does a story fit into this process, uh, whether it's sales or in our case, you know, we're talking to investors or uh, maybe to our team and thinking about, you know, when do we fit a story in? Are there better times? Yeah. So, you know, some people say if you, you know, you got a meeting or a speech, you kick it off with a good story or close it with a good story. And those are true. The, The beginning and the end are certainly good times to tell a story uh, because, you know, audience tends to remember somebody had done this research about what parts of a conversation or a speech or presentation do people remember the most. And it's typically the beginning, the end, and the high point, the most memorable or the, the, the most emotionally salient point. So yeah, you, you want your presentations to kind of start and end with a story would be great. But the more important place to put the story is where it just fits in the conversation. Uh, so I, yeah, I wouldn't overthink it and draw, well, I've got to have one at the beginning. I got to have one at the end. I mean, just put them where they belong. And, and oftentimes you can't even predict that because it just happens in conversation, right? You, you know, somebody brings up a problem that they're having. And if you've had experience with that problem before, well, that's a great time for you to share the story of, yeah, you know, I had that problem a few years ago when I was in that job. Here's what I did. Okay. Now you told them a story. You weren't planning on telling the story, but the time came. So I I think the unplanned moments are even more important than the planned ones. Yeah. You know, I I feel like a a story doesn't have much weight if, if the listener doesn't trust you. 
right? Often, it seems, or they're probably not even going to be listening hardly if they don't have some trust or expectation of trust or or something. Uh, what makes a you know someone trust the storyteller? And we talked a little bit yesterday uh, about those first couple questions, but what helps them to build credibility or trust? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, two or three things come to mind. First of all, just earning trust with somebody if they've just met you. People naturally don't trust people they don't know. Okay. That's just a human fact, fact of nature, right? And we, the other side of that coin is we naturally trust people who we know until they give, give us a reason not to, right? So just knowing somebody personally moves them into our circle of trust. All right. So how do you get to know somebody or how do you let somebody get to know you? And the answer is, well, you can either spend six or 12 months working with them, <laughs> you know, which just takes a long time, or you can tell them some personal stories about you. And for whatever reason, people, well, now that I've heard a few personal stories about you, I, I kind of feel like I know you personally. You automatically get inside that circle of trust. Now you need to stay there. To stay there, you need to not violate that trust, but it gets you in that circle much quicker, just sharing personal stories. So the storytelling as a technique actually does earn you some trust. Okay. But in the story itself, so whether you've done that or not, when you find yourself telling a story, the thing that earns credibility is that question number two that I think we talked about yesterday. Where and when does the story take place? If you tell them exactly where and when the story takes place, you know, when I was 18 years old in uh, Poughkeepsie, New York, blah, 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 blah. Okay. All right. So now they, they know exactly where and when the story takes place which communicates to most people that this is a true story that I can believe because obviously you've done your research, you know exactly where and when it happened, which is more effective than saying, now this is a true story, which just sounds kind of defensive. In fact, I think when people say that, it makes it sound less believable when they say, oh, this is a true story. Well, okay, I guess I'll just trust you. But if you tell them, look, this is exactly where and when this happened, you know, I've done my research, that makes it believable. It, it lends credibility to it, which gives, which lends trust to you as the speaker. Yeah. And speak to the, you know, the element of surprise, the element of the unknown. And does it make stories more compelling? How do you feel about that? Oh, you, you need to have it. I mean, a, a surprise is, of course, you know, the, the movies we watch and the books we read, you love a surprise ending because it makes it the story more fun. But even for leadership stories, it's an important component, but not just because it makes it more fun, even though it does that too. It, it's important for a leadership story because it literally, physiologically makes the story more memorable. And, and here's why. It turns out the human brain forms memories. It's not instantaneous like a like a digital camera. It turns out it works more like old fashioned film cameras that you're probably too young to remember. But, you know, you'd have to take a picture and take the film to the de- the film store and they develop it in the dark room. And you know, it, there's a period of time after something happens where the story is kind of being developed in your memory it can be just from a few seconds to a few minutes to a few hours sometimes after something happens. And that that period of time is called the memory consolidation period. That's what psychologists call it. And during that period of time, the memory is vulnerable, vulnerable to being forgotten. First of all, like if, if uh, you know, you're in a car accident or have a sports injury and you get your head hit and you get a concussion, well, what happens to people's memory when they get a concussion? You know, forget. Yeah, they, they lose it. It's not uncommon for somebody to wake up in the hospital and go, oh, how did I get here? Oh, you're in a car accident. Don't you remember? No, I don't remember. I mean, that's very typical. The reason is because the, the memory of that car coming at them was in the memory consolidation period being developed when the impact happened. So it interrupted it. So it never finished. Therefore, the memory was lost. Now, the good news is if there's something that can interrupt the memory consolidation process, there's something that can enhance it too. There's several things that do that. One of them is caffeine in your morning coffee. But another thing that does that is adrenaline, the kind of adrenaline that gets released in your system naturally when you get frightened or 
surprised. So a surprise literally physiologically makes the story you're telling more memorable. And if it's more memorable, people are more likely to act on it for longer and it's more likely to be a more effective leadership communication tool for you. So surprises play a very pragmatic role in your storytelling. Interesting. Seems like a, I don't know, I was thinking about this coming up with a surprise versus, uh, you know, it being so expected, you know, whatever, you know, the theme of the story. I feel like often, you know, like you talked about a couple of times, you know, somebody coming to you, oh, I've got this problem. And you say, well, when I did this, you know, you go through this story of how you took, how you know, that happened to you when you were in that position. It's going to be hard, I feel like, to create the element of surprise or, or is it? You'd think so, but there are actually techniques to do it. Folks in Hollywood figured this out a long time ago, and we can use some of the same techniques they do. So, I mean, the the easier ones are if you've got a surprise somewhere in the story, you can choose where to put it. If you want it at the beginning to get their attention, you can put it there and then kind of use flashback like they do in Hollywood to then go back and tell the story up to that point. But if you think there's no surprise in your story, you actually can create one. So I'll I'll give you the the easiest technique to do this. I'll just give you an example of it, and then I'll explain how it worked. And you, you may remember this from, from the class a few months ago. So there's a, young boy named James, right? Nine-year-old kid. He's in the kitchen with his mom and his mom's sister. And while mom and auntie are sitting at the kitchen table having a cup of tea, James is standing at the stove watching the tea kettle boil. And he's just fascinated with it, right? He's watching the jet of steam come out of the tea kettle and he's got a spoon. He holds it up there into the jet of steam and watches his little drops of water condense on the spoon. And they trickle down and they drip into a, a cup he's got sitting there so it doesn't make a mess in his mom's kitchen. And he's just watching the cycle go over and over and over again, just fascinated with it. Well, eventually his mother gets a little frustrated with him and she kind of barks at him. She's like, James, like go outside, read a book, do your homework, you know, ride your bike, (laughs) do something. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? Just you're literally staring at the tea kettle boiling for like an hour now. That's weird. You know? Um, Well, fortunately, young James was undaunted by that admonition because 20 years later in the year 1765, James Watt reinvented the steam engine ushering in the industrial revolution that we, of course, all benefit from today and all based on that fascination with steam that he developed at the age of nine in his mother's kitchen. Now, to you, since you've heard that story before, it probably wasn't a surprise, but to your audience members who haven't heard that story, it was probably a surprise that that turned out to be James Watt, the guy that invented the steam engine. And why was it a surprise? Here's the technique, because I didn't tell you his last name and the year. So So there it is. The technique is, I took one or two small but vital pieces of information that belonged at the beginning of the story, and I didn't give them to you until the end of the story. Presto, surprise ending. Now, you can't just reverse the story around. You know, that you're, you're violating the structure. But notice, so question number two was, where and when did it happen? Well, I didn't ignore that question. I told you it happened in mom's kitchen. Where? I didn't tell you when. I didn't give you the year. The third question is, who's the main character? I didn't just ignore that question. I told you, James. I didn't tell you James what, right? So you have to answer some of the question or the audience gets confused and you're kind of violating your your storytelling contract with them. But find part of the question to leave unanswered and don't answer it until the end. And you just created a natural surprise in the story. You can do it with almost any story. Yeah, as we build out our own story, and maybe you could provide a technique around this too, even as we write our own story out. You know, How do you suggest someone does that? Get a word document document out, actually type it out, uh, and then think through these elements like that. How, how do you give a couple of techniques maybe on just physically building that practical steps? Yeah, well, so the, the the building of it, you know, when you're actually typing it out, again, I would suggest just answering the eight questions in bullet point form, not full sentences, because if you script it out word for word, 
you're going to be tempted to memorize it and deliver it word for word. And then it's going to sound really awkward. (laughs) It's going to sound like you're delivering a memorized story and that just doesn't sound good. You want it to sound extemporaneous and conversational. So just bullet point answers. And then every time you tell the story, it'll come out a little bit different, which is exactly the way you want it to come out. But as far as like building in these, the surprise, for example, that that technique I just taught you, the most common way that is executed in a story is similar to that when you kind of withhold the identity of the main character. So imagine earlier, you know, I I told you, uh, you know, if you come to me with a problem and I say, uh, oh yeah, that's an interesting problem. Let me tell you what I did five years ago when I had your job and I ran into that problem. Um, you could do that, but now you've told them who the main character was. You could execute it by saying, basically telling them the story of their, you know, there was this vice president of whatever department a few years ago who ran into this problem and she did this and she tried this and that didn't work. And then she tried this and that didn't work. And finally she did this and that worked and, you know, whatever, then you finish out the story. And then you say, oh, by the way, you know, that person in that story, that was me. And those first few mistakes that she made, I'll I'll never make that mistake again, you know, because it almost cost me my job. And, you know, uh, so you just notice how much more powerful of an ending it is when they find out at the end, oh, oh, that was you. Oh, you did that. Oh, you were the one that did that stupid thing. Yeah. Yeah. That was me. And I wanted you to know, you know, so you can use that technique with just about any story. Are you ready to take the next step in your multifamily investing career? The time has never been better than now. Think Multifamily's Deal Analysis Workshop is a comprehensive live training course that will help increase your skills, knowledge, confidence as an investor before you invest. This workshop is a unique experience that provides hands-on instruction and guidance directly from Mark Kinney, who has completed over 100 multifamily syndications valued at over $1 billion. This course goes beyond theory as you will be presented with real case studies and practice scenarios to work out in class. By the end of the training, you will have significantly improved your ability to evaluate deals quickly, make informed decisions, and take your investing skills to the next level with confidence. For more information and to register for Think Multifamily's Deal Analysis Workshop, go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash D-A-W, use code Whitney100 to save $100. The Deal Analysis Workshop is designed for both beginner and experienced investors. Whether you are looking for a foundational understanding of how to analyze multifamily investments or looking for fresh insight on how to pivot your analysis method, For this current market cycle, this is a workshop you have been looking for. Register today at thinkmultifamily.com forward slash D-A-W. Use code Whitney100 to save $100. One final thing I wanted to ask you about too, because I know this comes up in our business a lot, is that elevator pitch, right? We've all heard that terminology and try to think through, you know, what are we going to say? We have two minutes with this person. And I've talked about it a lot on the show, you know, because if, if we're at a conference and and you're talking to a hundred investors and you're all talking about the same thing or that next multifamily deal or whatever it may be, well, they're not going to remember, have a clue who you are right a week from now. Uh, and so I, you know, I wonder about your thoughts on a story, you know, during that, the two minutes you have with somebody or less uh, in that quote elevator pitch. Yeah. So the, the real elevator pitch is probably not two minutes. It's probably 30 seconds, right? So yeah, that, which that's is right. More challenging. Yeah. So all the stories that you and I've just talked about are really in the two to three minute range. You can shorten them, but the way to do that is not just to cut things out that you think are less important, not at random, but just based on your, your gut instinct. What you're likely to do if you do that is you're going to end up cutting out answers to an entire question. 
And now you don't have a complete story. You just have a, a partial story. So a better technique is, you know, write out the bullet pointed answers to the eight questions and then go through and delete a few of the bullet points, but don't delete every bullet point in in one box if in answer to one question. And that, cause now you, you don't have an answer to that question at all, right? So it's just, it's smarter to delete that way than just cut out entire chunks. Now, if you want to get down to where it's 10 seconds, uh, yeah, you might have to do that. And so I guess the advice I'd give you there is the shortest effective storytelling structure is problem resolution, right? So if you wanted to cut through all the, so like, I'm assuming on the elevator, I've got their attention. I don't need to use a hook. I don't have time to deliver the recommendation and the lesson. I just need to trust that they'll, you know, so you're going to, I'm going to cut those out. And if you, if you wanted to skinny it down even further, it's basically problem solution. Here's the problem. Here's what we did about it. And then you can let them figure out if that was a success or a failure, you know, later. But at its nub, every story is problem resolution. Paul, what other techniques would I not even know to ask you about uh, before or any, and anything else you want to leave the listeners with as far as around story, the importance of storytelling before we move to a few final questions? Yeah. So probably the biggest one that we need to at least spend a minute or two on, it would be emotion. Emotion is an important component of a well-told story. You need to engage your audience emotionally. Remember, that's why you're telling the story in the first place is so that their subconscious emotional brain will have something to think about, right? In making the decision. And there's some pretty simple techniques to make sure you've got, you know, some kind of emotional engagement in your stories. And dialogue is the easiest one. I mean, people say what they think and feel. It will come out of their mouths. So if your story sounds like just a dry recitation of events, well, this happened and then this happened and this happened and then this happened. I mean, you're doing it wrong, right? It ought to be, well, this happened. And then he said this. And then this happened. And she said that I right? just having the dialogue will make it a more emotionally salient to people. Because again, people will, people say what they think and feel and it will kind of come out of their mouths. But there are a couple of other really easy techniques. I mean, one is just, I call the tell me technique. Just name it. Like literally say he was sad. She was angry. They were confused. I mean, just name the emotion. The audience will get it. But a little bit more powerful one is the show me technique. Now, that doesn't mean you demonstrate it. You know, I'm not teaching an acting class or something, but just describing the physical manifestations of the emotions on the main characters will really go a long way to having your audience kind of empathize with that. So instead of saying, you know, he was sad, say he started crying. Well, people cry when they're sad, right? The audience will figure it out. You know, instead of saying uh, she was angry, say she started yelling. Well, people yell when they're angry, right? The audience will figure it out. So, so, so describe what's happening. You know, the, the, the red face, the confused look, the, you know, whatever the audience will figure out the emotion from the clues you're giving them. And for some reason, that's a more powerful way for humans to e emote with a story. Love that. That's incredible. I, I am going to try to use that myself. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Uh, Paul, It's it's been great. I think it's so helpful to think through how we are speaking. It's so, yeah, it's worth our time to become better speakers and ultimately better storytellers for all the reasons you have laid out here over the last few days. A few final questions for you, Paul, that I ask often, almost everyone uh, that uh, I find interesting as well is, uh, Paul, what are some of the most important metrics uh, that you track for yourself. It could be personally or professionally. It could be the interviews you've done. It could be your bench press goal, you know, either one. Oh, well, the, I mean, the health ones are the easiest ones, right? You know, uh, what was my cholesterol level? How many miles did I run this week? You know, how many times did I actually get to the gym? Th those kind of things. As a business person, here's one that I don't track that I probably should. And that is uh, how many conversations did I have with with prospects? And how many of those did I initiate versus, you know, somebody else? Uh, you know, I, I tend to just sit around and wait for the phone to ring and, <laughs> you know, probably be more effective, you know, some other way. 
but I don't have a lot. So, I mean, when I worked at Procter and Gamble for 20 years, you know, the year at this big company, you, you know, we had dozens and dozens of metrics that we measured and, you know, my department was in charge of tracking several of them. And it was, a, you know, it was an important part of running a business. I'm a solopreneur now and I don't do that a lot. So I've lost that discipline. Probably could be more effective if I reestablish that, but it's pretty easy in my position to, to not do that. So I'm, I've probably fallen victim to that. Are, are there other habits that you have that you feel have produced a, a return for you that you'd recommend? Yeah, for sure. So uh, first of all, exercising in the morning, like first thing, was one of the best habits that I ever developed. And it's harder now that I don't have to go into an office every day. It, it's harder to do that um, or it, not harder to do. It's I, I don't have the uh, constraint. But uh, yeah, because like I literally I don't even drink coffee. Like, you know, the reason, you know, the way that I'm awake is because, you know, you get that workout first thing in the morning and well, now you're awake uh, and you don't need this, this caffeine habit that most people tend to have. So that was, that's been a good one for me. Probably one other worth mentioning is um, when I was in my mid thirties, I started talking to people who are retired just to like, what's it like to be retired? You know, I'm 20 or 30 years away from that, but I'm kind of curious what that's all about. And one of the things that almost everybody said was their favorite part about being retired is not having to wake up to an alarm, like, you know, hitting the snooze button over and over and just having that alarm wake them up in the morning was the worst part of their day. And it just started their day off on a bad foot, right? Like this, oh, and I'm so tired and I need more sleep. And it's just awful. So I started thinking, well, what could I do? Like I'm, I'm too young to retire, but what could I do to achieve to enjoy that benefit of retirement, even though I'm not retired yet. And so I just started going to bed earlier, 30 minutes earlier, and I still needed an alarm. Then I went to bed 30 minutes earlier than that. And I still needed an alarm. And I found out that 10 o'clock at night, if I went to bed at 10 o'clock, I would wake up at 6 a.m. And which is when I wanted to wake up to go work out, to get to the office by eight. And so pretty soon, so I did that for a while. And pretty soon I stopped needing an alarm clock. And I literally haven't used an alarm in probably 30 years. You know, I mean, except for on occasion when I've got a 6 a.m. flight or something, you know, but other than that, I just, I haven't, I just, you have the discipline to go into bed and I'm, I'm always well rested. So that's, that was a game changer. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I can relate to that to some degree, but it's like what we associate that sound with, right? It immediately puts us in a bad mood. <laughs> what about a uh, number one thing that's contributed to your success? Probably just having the guts to leave my cushy corporate job in the middle of my career and going and pursuing this passion of being an author and a speaker and a trainer, you know, I probably could have, you know, pursued some of this while keeping my corporate job, but, uh, you know, having the guts to, to leave and go do this, you know, when I was too young for retirement and all that kind of stuff that allowed me to have the flexibility to focus all my time and effort on researching and writing about storytelling and which, you know, evolved into an entire career in of itself. And yeah, it's hard for me to imagine 10 years now later, you know, what it would be like if I was still, you know, in my old life. Well, I, I liked my job, but this is just, just head and shoulders above all the rest of it. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that that was able to happen. Paul, how do you like to give back? Mm. Well, I, I, I did it this week and, you know, being a solopreneur gives you a little bit more flexibility and things like that. So um, for example, twice a year, uh, a high school class from Breen County, Ohio comes to visit me. I mean, it's different kids each time, different semester class come to visit me, uh, sometimes at my house here and sometimes at the local library. And I basically teach them some of the same things that I teach my executive clients about being better leaders and being better storytellers. And sometimes it's just about life. There are things like that, that I, I have the flexibility to do now that I, I didn't before. And, uh, and that, that feels pretty good to in, invest in future leaders that way. Awesome. Paul, grateful for you giving back in that way, but I feel like you've also given back to us in a big way over the last three days. 
uh, just uh, spending this much time with us. I'm very grateful uh, for your time. I know the listeners have learned a lot. I have learned a lot. It's great to hear. I heard you speak about a number of these things. It's great to hear it again. And I, I just, I want to spend or commit some time on this. I even want to, I, I love the idea too of different team members sharing different stories in the meetings. I think that's such a good idea. I think you're going to learn a lot about other people in your team too, right? And build even some culture and and uh, love that idea. And so thank you so much again for, for your time and sharing your expertise. Tell the listeners again how they can get in touch with you and learn more about you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This was this was a lot of fun. Uh, my website's the easiest way. So that's leadwithastory.com. And that's got links there to all my books and the training courses, et cetera. So thanks for having me. Thank you for being a loyal listener of the Real Estate Syndication Show. Please subscribe and like the show. Share with your friends so we can help them as well. Don't forget, go to lifebridgecapital.com where you can sign up and start investing in real estate today. Have a blessed day.